Well, we're going to jump into the text of Revelation with both feet today. So get your Bible and let's look to Revelation chapter 1. Now, I think it's obvious to most people that we are living in distressing times, even, even frightening times for many. And I'm not talking about just things like coronavirus or, or uh, those kind of things. I'm talking about the fact that we today, we live in a post-Christian nation. Uh, for the first time in the history of our country, we find ourselves uh, to be an alien people in a hostile land. See, that's new for us. But, but, the, but that was the world that the church was originally born into. And as John begins the book of Revelation, he makes mention of that. In verse 9, he introduces himself not as an apostle of Christ or a disciple of Jesus, but he, sa- he, de- he describes himself as your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, in the trouble, in the distress, the persecution. Persecution. You see, by the close of the first century, Christianity had become a hated and despised religious sect in the Roman Empire. Well, you say, what was the source of that hatred? Well, there are several reasons that Christians were hated in the Roman Empire. First of all, fundamentally, there is a natural hostility in the heart of fallen people against the gospel. We hate the gospel because it exposes our sin and it confronts our pride. Politically, the Romans were viewed as disloyal because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And and they refused to offer sacrifices to him in worship. Uh, they uh, and because their meetings were often held uh, privately in night at night, some of the uh, b- leaders of the Roman Empire believed that the Christians were hatching anti-government plots against them. Religiously, Christians were denounced as atheists. Why? Because they refused to worship the the Roman pantheon of God, of, of gods. They they worshipped a an invisible god rather than an idol, and rumors began to swirl that that were centered around a misunderstanding of Christian beliefs and practices. They they said that the the communion, the Lord's Supper, was a was cannibalism. They said the fact that uh, Christians would call themselves brothers and sisters that they were involved in incest, and they had other such beliefs that they distorted to downplay uh, the importance of Christianity. Socially, Christians were uh, despised by the Roman aristocracy because most of these believers were from the lower classes. They worried that that uh, teaching would that all men are equal in Christ would somehow topple the Roman uh, society of aristocracy and would uh, topple them from their place of prestige and privilege. It also heightened their fear of a uh, slave rebellion. While Christianity didn't openly oppose slavery, they did teach that slave and master were equal in Christ, and they saw that as a, as a, as a danger to the idea of slavery. 
And because most of the Christians refused to participate in the worldly amusements of the pagan society, uh, the theater, the festivals, the pagan festivals, and so forth, they were just looked upon as being weird, strange. Economically, the priests, craftsmen, and, and merchants who profited from the sale of idols across the Roman Empire uh, felt like the, this Christianity was a, was, a, was a danger to their business. And in fact, uh, as Christianity spread across the empire, it did have an impact on idol sales, leading many business leaders to, to intercede with the Roman government to, to, to come against this uh, religion. During the first few decades after the death and resurrection of Christ, the Roman government considered Christianity a sect of Judaism. But eventually... Because of the hostility displayed by the Jews toward the Christians, the Roman government began to realize that Christianity was a separate religion from Judaism. And suddenly, Christianity became an illegal religious sect. And so, it was opposed in the Roman Empire. But even so, there was no official persecution empire-wide until the time of Nero. In A.D. 64, seeking to divert public suspicion from the fact that he had set Rome afire, Nero blamed that great fire on the Christians. And as a result, many Christians were executed in the city of Rome, including, according to tradition, Peter and the Apostle Paul. But even so, that persecution was rather confined to the area of Rome itself. And um, three decades later, Domitian, the emperor Domitian, instigated an official persecution of Christians, and it went worldwide. We don't have a lot of details, uh, but we do know this that many Christians were thrown to the lions and other wild animals. They were placed in the arenas for the entertainment of the public. They were boiled in oil. They were covered with tar and set on fire. They were imprisoned. Many of them ran from this persecution and went into the catacombs uh, underground, running from this persecution the apostle paul or apostle john was was banned uh, to the isle of patmos and at least one other high profile pastor had been martyred at this time you see it had been years since jesus had ascended jerusalem had been totally destroyed by the romans this was brought bare Judea, the the jews had been ravaged and the church was beginning to experience serious spiritual decline. All the other apostles had been killed, martyred, except for John. He's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and the whole picture is beginning to look very bleak. The persecuted believers that John writes to in Asia Minor needed very much some encouragement. And that's why the first vision John received from the Holy Spirit 
was of Christ's ministry in his church. Now, John's readers certainly took comfort in the knowledge that Christ will one day return and deal with and defeat all of his enemies. But you see, the vision that the book of Revelation begins with is not a vision of Christ in his future glory, but it is a vision of Christ at work in his church right now. Christ has a ministry in his church. See, despite all the difficulties, despite all the persecution, we see that the Lord has not abandoned his people. He has not forgotten his promises. And this powerful vision of Christ's present ministry in his church provided great comfort and hope to these churches that were going, undergoing persecution. Now, I'll tell you, that same, that same principle is true for us today. See, it's, it's easy to become discouraged about the state of the world, about the, the, the condition of our country, as we see, you know, growing animosity toward Christianity, toward the Bible and the gospel. And when you consider the, the rather depressing state of the so-called church, it's even more discouraging. Chaos and confusion abound. True godliness Clear biblical preaching and teaching, it's rare. I want to tell you it's rare. I've just been come to a greater realization of that than ever before just recently. Just how rare it is when people truly teach the Bible. There's so much, there's so much Christian teaching, general ideas and thoughts that are being going. But the clear teaching of the Bible is so absent and you see, selfishness is rampant, even within the church. Worldliness dominates the people, not only the people in the church, but many of the leaders in the church. What is the church to expect in the future as hostility increases, as, as animosity escalates? I mean, as more and more people see Christianity as an enemy in the land. As they begin to make laws against what we believe, how do we respond to that? What's the church to do? We see that's what the vision in chapter 1 addresses us. It shows us Christ's ministry in his church. And as we read this great passage beginning in chapter 1 and verse 19, we see that the Lord has not abandoned us. He has not lost control of his church, nor of the world for that matter, but that he is in control. And so I want to encourage you to look with me to Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when he has been made made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. For as for, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand... And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the seven angels of the churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you that you have given us this incredible revelation of yourself And Lord, we just ask you that you might give us a small portion of the awe and wonder and majesty that John saw in you when he received this revelation. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, give us spiritual eyes to see these great truths and to, and to appreciate and to be, uh, encouraged Uh, that we might persevere, that we might endure, that we might be faithful to you, that we might bring glory and honor to you, that we might be encouraged greatly. And I pray, Lord, for those that have never come to know you, that today you would draw those hearts to yourself in faith through Christ. Amen. Amen. This passage shows us three significant ways that the glorified Christ ministers within his church. And first, Christ speaks to his church. Christ speaks to his church. And that may seem so simple to you. But let me tell you, that is incredibly significant, that Christ speaks to his church. He, he addresses the needs that we have in our lives. Look at verse 9. He says, I, John... Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was absolutely amazed that God had chosen to to reveal this incredible revelation to him. He just says, "I, I can't believe me that he chose me. He's just in awe of this. And he, he humbly identifies himself as, as your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. You see, like most of the churches, John was suffering because of the cause of Christ. 
He was part of the same kingdom. You say, what kingdom? Well, the sphere of salvation over which the Lord Jesus Christ rules. I'm in the kingdom of God. I'm with you in this. And you see, and he says, and he's, I'm responding to that persecution with perseverance. Word perseverance translates the, he, uh, the, the Greek word hupomane. It means to, to, to remain under, literally, or it's the idea of steadfast endurance. It means that you, that you persevere, that you continue to be faithful in spite of whatever is coming on without giving up. You persevere, you endure. And you see, when you are in Jesus, when you have trusted Jesus Christ with your life, when you have surrendered the control of him and your life is available to him, what do you do when difficult times come? You persevere. You remain faithful in spite of the persecution, in spite of the difficulties, you persevere. God gives us the grace to do that, to endure. And you see, because you have the the assurance that ultimately you will be victorious in Christ. I mean, we sang about that this morning, about our victory, ultimate victory in Jesus. And when he received this vision, he was on the Isle of Patmos. Now, Patmos is, is a barren volcanic island in the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's about 10 miles long and 5 miles wide, kind of crescent shape. Uh, it's about 40 miles off the coast of Miletus. You can see that down there on the, uh, on the map uh, of Patmos is there. And um, according to the, to the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, being exiled on an island like this was a common way of punishing uh, people in the first century. John was probably sent there for being a, a member of, of, a, of a, an illegal religious sect. And so the conditions there were very harsh. Uh, he had inadequate food and, and, and clothing, and he had to sleep on a bare rock. Well, that was very difficult on a 90-year-old man. And, and some think that he was subject to uh, exhausting labor under the ready whip of a, of a Roman taskmaster. John's only crime for being there, and I think I've got a picture, a couple pictures here. Just it's just a you know, it's not much there. It's it's very rocky and very little there on, on that island. John's only only crime was it says faithfulness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now those those two word those two phrases are, are are synonymous. John was simply exiled because he was faithful to preach the word of God. He was faithful to being a Christian. And it tells us in verse 10 that he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. You see, he received his vision while he was, it says, in the Spirit. Under the the Holy Spirit's control, John was transported to a plane of experience and perception That goes beyond human understanding. And in that place, God revealed these incredible truths about the future to John. And he he has this vision on, it says, the Lord's Day. That was just a common way of referring to Sunday because that's the day that the Lord rose from the dead. And that was the day of worship now for the new church. 
And so the vision came in a very dramatic fashion. He said, I I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see. Now that loud voice that John heard was the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and it sounded like a trumpet. Now understand this, John did not hear a trumpet. He heard a voice and he says that voice had qualities or characteristics like a trumpet. You say, what characteristics? It had that, that piercing, clear, authoritative ring to it. It comes ringing very distinctly. And you see, trumpets were used in battle because they had that piercing sound that could cut through all the chaos and the confusion of battle, and they could clearly communicate commands to the troops, whether to advance or whether to retreat or whatever it is, other maneuvers they had. And and you see, what he's saying is that the voice of Jesus Christ comes through all the chaos and the confusion and the distractions of this world, and Jesus speaks with extreme distinction and clarity to his people, his church. He's a speaking God. And so John tells us that his voice was like a trumpet. In verse 11, Jesus says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, this is the first of 12 commands that John receives to write what he sees. And after writing the vision, John was to send it to the seven churches. He says to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, if you look at this on a map, you can see that These seven churches were located in seven key cities in Asia Minor. Asia Minor was divided by the Romans into seven postal districts. And they were connected by, you know, the Roman way, the Roman roads. And if you were to travel from Patmos to Ephesus and travel kind of in a clockwise circular motion, you would, and follow those Roman roads, you would come to each church in succession here. Now, here's the point. Amid the persecution, the uncertainty, and the, distur- and the, and the uh, discouragement, Christ speaks to his churches. Christ says, listen, I want you to get this, what I've said, to the churches. I speak to my churches. I speak, uh, John, I'm speaking through you. Jesus uses people to reveal his truth and he verifies it and he gives it to us and God has given us this message from Jesus. And like a trumpet, his voice is, his voice pierces distinctly through all the noise and the confusion of this life and he speaks with reassuring clarity. Jesus says, "I'm still here. I'm still in control." I, I know what I'm doing. And Jesus is going to address all the specific needs of the churches. All the churches of that day, all the churches of this day, all of our needs. And Jesus is a God who speaks to his church. Jesus is speaking to Good Shepherd, 
And Jesus is speaking to you. Secondly, Christ encourages his church. And there are seven ways I see in this text how Jesus encourages his church. I think that's appropriate because remember, seven is that number of completion. This is, he completely encourages us. He gives us all the encouragement that we need. And he encourages us, his church, through his presence. Look at verse 12. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Now, at the outset of this vision, Jesus, uh, John has his back to the voice. And then he turns when he hears this voice to see the, the vo- who it was that was speaking with him. And as he did, here's what John sees. He sees seven golden lampstands identified in verse 20 as the seven churches. Now, these were just lampstands were just literally stands, like a stand for this microphone. Instead of a microphone, you put a little oil lamp there, and when you lit it, it lit the area around it. That's all a lampstand was. And it's, it's a reminder that the churches had been placed, you see, in the world as a light, as the truth of God to the world around them. Now, they hated that light, but they were a light. And Jesus is he's pictured standing among all of his churches. It's a picture for us that Jesus is present in his church. Jesus is present in this church right now. You can't see him. His spirit is here, but let me guarantee you that Jesus Christ walks these chairs and this whole church, and he knows every person in here. He knows every thought, every attitude, every motivation. He knows it all. He's among his church. And it says that that the, the lampstands are golden because, see, gold was the most precious metal. The church is the most beautiful and valuable entity to God on earth. And it's so valuable that Jesus was willing to to give his life to buy, to purchase the church. Seven, again, is that number of completeness. And, And so seven churches is a picture of Jesus speaking to all his churches everywhere in every day. In verse 13, it says, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Friends, Jesus is ministering right here, right now. Jesus. Jesus is speaking to your heart, to your life, right now, through his word. It's life-giving, encouraging truth. That he's speaking into your life right now. He is in the middle of every true church. And isn't that what Jesus promised? Remember when he left and he gave the great commission? What does he say? He says, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. On the night before his death, Jesus he says to his disciples, I'm not going to leave you. I will not leave you orphans. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never desert you, 
nor will I ever leave you. Friends, can I tell you, Jesus is present right now. Please, would you cut out of your prayer, take your big scissors and cut out of your prayer that little phrase, be with us. He is with us. That's what he promises. He is here. He is present. So Jesus is present in his church and he encourages us. He also encourages us through his intercession. Look at the last part of verse 13. He says he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Christ is is clothed in this robe that reaches down to his feet. The word translated robe here was most often used for the high priest. And Christ is a prophet. They wore robes. Christ is also king. They wore robes. But the the thing that really sells it here as that fact that he is our great high priest is that he has this golden sash that fits around his chest. This was the distinguishing characteristic of the high priest in the Old Testament. He wore a golden sash around his chest here. Jesus is our high priest priest. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us a lot about Jesus' ministry as a high priest. So much so, we'd have to study the whole book to be able to get it all. But let me just tell you what it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it is like to go through the things that we experience. He knows what it's like to experience persecution. He knows what it's like, what it's like when you're in the midst of something very difficult to want to quit. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed until he sweat blood because everything in him wanted to walk away from the cross. But he didn't. He endured. Because that's what God called him to do. And because he loved us. You see, he knows what it's like when it's difficult. When things are, 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 are struggling. He knows all about that. He's, he works in our lives and he has incredible sympathy. Sometimes people think, well, God just asked me to do that. And he's asked me to do something horrible and I don't want to do it. It's hard. But he knows. He knows how difficult it is. He never failed. He was without sin. And then he tells us in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, our great high priest, he says, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Lord Jesus Christ walked into the holy of holy in heaven and he placed on the altar there his own perfect blood to cover our sins once and for all and forever. And everyone who comes to him in faith, he takes away all of our sin once and for all. And he calls us to be his child and to, and to be in his kingdom and to persevere. And when we have trouble persevering, our great high priest goes before the Father and he intercedes for us. And he says to, a, he says to the Father, Father, I know what it's like. It's, it's so hard. God, give him the grace. Give him what he needs in this hour, in this moment. 
Give him the ability to turn. Give her that help she needs. He intercedes for us before the Father. And that knowledge that he is for us, with us, understanding, sympathetic, is incredibly encouraging when we're going through difficult times. Christ encourages his church through purification. Look at verse 14. His head and his hair were white like white wool and like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. You understand the New Testament sets forth the holy standard of Christ very clearly. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Friends, that is what Jesus wants for his church. He wants us to be without spot or blemish. He wants us to be holy and blameless. And to maintain that standard, Christ will discipline his church. Even to the point of taking the lives of some unrepentant, believing people. You see, John's description of Jesus, it says his head and hair were white like wool and like snow. That's an obvious reference to Daniel 7 and verse 9 where it speaks of the ancient of days. In other words, it's God in all of his holiness. And what he's saying is that Jesus Christ has the same holy standard as God the ancient of days. This holy, holy God. Uh, The word white... Uh, translates a word that that communicates more than just a color, but it's bright, it's blazing, it's brilliant. It's a a picture of God's absolute holiness. And continuing his description of the glorified Christ, he says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. You see, his searching gaze penetrates into the depths of every human soul. His eyes are lasers. They cut through all the masks, all the the distractions, everything that we put up that would try to, to protect ourselves from his view, nothing. He is able to see into the depths of our souls. He knows all of our attitudes, our motives. He knows all of our thoughts, all of our imaginations. He knows us perfectly. And in the words of Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Friends, the, the, the omniscient Lord of his church will recognize sin and he will deal with it. And it, 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 this picture continues. Now you, I, want you to, I, want you, I want you to think here just for a moment. When we read Revelation, we come and we want to hear and see what God is going to do to the sinful world. And we forget that that same holy God is the Lord of the church. 
That same holy God deals with sin in the church. And it says his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in the furnace. That's another picture here of God's judgment on sin. And, and kings, and what he's doing is it's the idea of burning hot judgment. In the ancient days, kings were always, their feet were always on a platform. That's why they were elevated above their subjects. When anyone came to them, they were below their feet because that showed their authority and that the fact that the person who, who's coming before them is subject to them. And when we come before God, when we come before the Lord Jesus Christ, we come subject to him. And he comes and he, when he sees and knows our sin, he deals with it. We, he, all of our sin is subject to his great authority. So Hebrews 12 reminds us that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Why? He says, so that we may share his holiness. It's God's love for us that causes him to pursue our holiness. He wants us to be holy. And that should bring great comfort to the church. He also comforts his church by his authority. Verse 15, the last part of that verse says, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. See, when John hears him talking, now it's no longer like a trumpet, but it's like the sound of these great waves breaking on the rocks of Patmos. It's like the roar of Niagara coming down. This is a voice of authority, a voice of power. And when he speaks, we must listen. What did God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. And friend, Christ is speaking to us today through his Son, through his Word, Jesus Christ speaks with incredible authority. So whatever he says, we should take it into heart and listen. It's an encouragement. And listen, he, he encourages us through his messengers. See, in verse 16, he says, In his right hand he held seven stars. You say, what are these seven stars? Well, verse 20 tells us. He explains this mystery. And he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, seven, are the angels of the seven churches. So Christ is holding seven stars in his hands, and they're identified in verse 20 as the angels of the seven churches. So well, then the question comes, if, if Jesus is holding these stars in his hands, what does that mean? That means that he's in control. That means that he has authority. We say, okay, well, what are these stars? Well, they're in the in the uh, the word that is used here is angels. That translates a Greek word. Guess what? Angels <laughs> or angeloi, and it's a word that simply means messengers. And you see, many times in the New Testament, angeloi translates the idea of these supernatural messengers that we know as angels. And sometimes 
that word angeloi translates messengers that are human. For example, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 52, it says that Jesus sent messengers ahead of him. That's angels who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Those were human messengers. And the the difference is the context of how you translate it. And the messengers here in verse 20 are also human messengers. Specifically, they are the elders or the pastors of the seven churches. Jesus holds the pastors, the elders, whatever you want to call them, in his hand. He is in control. Pastors don't control the church. Jesus controls the church. Pastors simply seek to be obedient to the Christ who controls the church. Pastors simply seek to be be available to God to speak through so that Christ can communicate to his church. I believe with all of my being that this morning that you are hearing from the part of the word of God that Jesus Christ wants you to hear. I, I simply seek to make myself available to him, to, to, to let him follow his leading as best as I can. It's not perfect, but he holds my life in his hand. And he does use me in your life. I believe you're hearing God's word through the voice of a man, through the the scriptures. I'm not saying I'm God. I'm not saying I have. I'm saying God, Jesus, does this. He has all things in his hands. Just like he works through you in the world out there. And so... God uses his, his messengers because, you see, again, there's, a, there's an identification of that. We all, we recognize, you know, what we go through in life. These are, can be incredibly difficult things, right, that we go through. And God can use that in our lives. But he, he, he encourages us through his protection. Verse 16, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Wow. That's a, that's a long, double-edged sword, a romphia, and when it comes out, it can do some incredible damage. And Jesus, how, what's he speaking of? What it comes out of his mouth, it's his, it's his word, his truth. When he comes out, it comes out, in this case, as our protection. Those who attack Christ's church, those who sow lies and discord, or otherwise harm God's people, they are personally responsible before the Lord Jesus Christ. I have seen God. I have seen God take his sword to people in the church. He does that. And his word is formidable, and it's used against his enemies, and it's also used against his own people when they disobey. And finally, number seven Uh, Christ encourages us through his glory. The last part of verse 16 says, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When when, When John looks at Jesus, he can't think of any other way than to express it than it's like trying to look at the sun. 
you know, you, you just really can't look very long at the sun. I mean, you, kinda, you, can't, you can't avoid squinting your eyes. You, you can't look very long because it just, it's overwhelming. It's, it'll, it'll burn your eyes out. And Jesus Christ in his holiness and his majesty, you just can't look at him very long. You just kind of get a glimpse of who he is. And the glory of God, you see, shines through Jesus Christ. He's the way that we can see Jesus, see God. He's the filter, as it were. But here in his glory, I mean, it's just it's overwhelming. And in all these ways... Christ encourages his church. And finally, Christ assures his church. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, when John saw the glorified Christ, he fell over like a dead man. He was incapacitated by fear. Now, friends, think about this. This was John, one of the 12 disciples that spent every day with Jesus for three years, that ate with him, that knew him intimately. This was John the Apostle. This was John who had been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, who saw him in his glory. This was John who had laid his head on the breast of Jesus. This was the one whom Jesus loved. This was the one to whom Jesus had entrusted the care of his mother while he's dying on the cross. This is John. And when, we, when John sees the glorified Christ, he falls over on his face like a dead man. There are people today that say, they, oh, that the glorified Christ has appeared to them. And then they describe it as some kind of casual, sentimental encounter. And I would say, well, that's not what I see in the Bible. Everybody I see that encounters God in the Bible is on their face, trembling. Friends, John was terrified. And and it wasn't until Jesus relieved his fear by placing his right hand on him and saying, do not be afraid, literally stop being afraid, that he felt that touch of comfort and reassurance and heard those words. Of comfort and reassurance. See, there's always this balance. Yes, he's a sympathizing high priest. Yes, he became a man like us, but he is also the glorified Lord of the church. And he says, he identifies him with several title himself with several titles. He says, I am. Now that's the covenant name of God. I am. I am the first. And the last. That's another title in the, found in the book of Isaiah. And it describes God as being the everlasting God, the only one God. And finally, he, he describes himself as the living one. Another title found throughout scripture for God. God is the eternal, uncaused, self-existent one. And that same one who struck fear into John's heart is the one who brings comfort to John. 
Now, he assures him, reassures him. He assures him, listen, when John is confronted with the glorified, holy God, what's his first thought? Woe is me. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm, I'm just destined to destruction in the presence of a holy God. But Jesus says, listen, yes, I am holy, but I also am the one who was who I was alive and then I became dead. I died for your sins, but now I am alive forevermore. I have paid the penalty for your sin once and for all. I have overcome death and I am alive. And because I am alive, now you can be in my presence and you have hope. I'm alive forevermore. Romans 6, 9. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Hebrews tells us he's able to save forever those who draw near to him through Christ. Despite the sinfulness and the, and the, and the, and the presence of the glorified Lord of heaven, John has nothing to fear because this one has died for his sin. So, and he says... I am the first and the last, the living one. Jesus holds the the keys of death and Hades. Now those terms are essentially synonymous. Death being the condition and Hades being the place. Hades is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament. Sheol, it means the place of the dead. And keys means that he has access and authority. Jesus Christ decides who lives and dies. Jesus Christ is God over life and death. Our lives are in his hands. And like John, as believers, we have nothing to fear since Christ has already delivered us from death and haste. He's got the keys. He's in control. Isn't that powerful? You see, Jesus says, in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Second Corinthians five eight, Paul tells us that to die is to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And Hebrews chapter two and verse fourteen says, tells us that Jesus conquered Satan. And he took the keys of death away from the devil. And he is now in control. He says, through death, Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And freed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Friends, you do not have to fear death and hell because Jesus Christ has the keys. He is in control. And that is encouraging if you are in Jesus, if you are in the kingdom, if you are in perseverance mode at the moment. Jesus is victor. And we will, we will be victorious in him. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited to look at the rest of Revelation. Now let me ask you a question. Are you in Jesus? 
Do you have, is Jesus Christ the Lord and the Savior of your life? If not, he can be. All you have to do is to, to call upon him. You, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be in control of my life. I want to trust myself into your hands. I know that it will cost me. I know that it brings persecution. I, I know that those things happen when I begin to follow you. But I believe that you ultimately are the victor. And I believe that you speak to me. I believe you're speaking to me today. And I believe you encourage me. And I believe you assure me. And I want to follow you. If you haven't done that, you can do that. And I want to ask you just to close your eyes and to, to bow your heads for this moment. If, if Jesus is speaking to you today about this, just talk back to him in your own heart right now and say, Jesus, I, I believe you. I do want to follow you. I, I do want to be your child. And I, I want to trust you. I believe you, you, you died in my place to forgive my sins, and I believe that you rose from the dead, that you're alive, and that you have the keys of life and death and eternity in your hands. Nobody else, nobody else but you does. And I want to follow you today. There's some of you that you've said, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I believed in Jesus. But you've never publicly demonstrated that through baptism. You've never publicly and unashamedly said, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe it's time to, for you to take action and be obedient to the Lord, not be ashamed of him. Maybe you need to be a part of his family. I mean, Jesus is talking to the church. Yes, he talks to the individual, but he's talking to his people collectively. God wants you to be a part of the family of God. Maybe you need to come today and be a part of the family of God here at Good Shepherd. Whatever it is, I encourage you to, when you hear Jesus speak, let him encourage you and assure you and you respond to him as he speaks. Father, we ask these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to ask you to stand. We're going to sing a final song as we do. This is your opportunity to, speak, to respond to the Lord Jesus who speaks. Whatever it is, whether you come, you're saying, I prayed that prayer with you. I, I'm just going to acknowledge that I'm, I want to be a believer or you want to be baptized. You want to be a part of the family of God. Or maybe you just need to come. Maybe you just, there's some business you need to do at the, here with, before the Lord. Maybe you've got some business with, uh, for, in behalf of someone else or your own heart. I encourage you, just come on as we sing.
you to come join one of our groups tonight, 5.30, as we discuss some of the things we've talked about today. And um, may God bless you.